Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. Hey, Bradley Tusk has had an amazing career trajectory in a short time period, going from a political strategist to a venture capitalist. And now he writes about these experiences in a brand new book that's called The Fixer, My Adventures Saving Startups from Death by Politics. That trajectory includes having worked really interned for Ed Rendell. Bradley was at Penn. Rendell was then mayor. He works for Chuck Schumer as a communications director, works for Mike Bloomberg, then manages his reelection campaign, works for Rod Blagojevich. That's an interesting story that he tells in the book. Uh, and then lands, an, uh, how about this, an uber-successful client. This is Bradley Tusk. Hey, Brad, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Michael, how are you? So there's a lawyer in Philadelphia. He's he's older now. He's in his late 80s. He might even be in his early 90s. His name is Richard Sprague. And he is one of the best trial lawyers in the nation. If you got jammed up, this is a guy you'd want on your side. Why do I bring this up? Because about a dozen years ago, the ABA profiled him, the American Bar Association, and they regarded him as a lawyer cum fixer. 
And he, <laughs> he, he found that objectionable. He sued them. He won. And your new book, which I've read and enjoyed, the title is The Fixer. Is that no longer a pejorative? Not to me. I guess everything's in the eye of the beholder. But, you know, they, we, we picked the title because a couple of different profiles uh, had called me that. And my editor thought it sounded pretty good. And I thought my editor seems pretty smart. So, you know, went with it. But, yeah, uh, tell the ABA if they want to call me the fixer. <laughs> I promise not to sue them. So, and, and I've, of course, heard it thrown around more recently with regard to the president's former lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, we did have this moment of like, oh, no, right. should we change the title because he's being called this? And I was like, you know what? Like, our books are books. You know, kind of, we, don't, we don't have to change our title because of that guy. Um, and so that's, that's what we did. And, you know, ho- hope, hopefully the title will at least feel familiar to people, maybe for all these different reasons, and get them to check out the book. Can we run through the trajectory? As one who both went to Penn himself and knows the mayor, I am not surprised yeah. that you saw Ed Rendell at the DNC sitting alone and quickly established a relationship. Yeah, so uh, it was it was kind of how I got started in politics. So summer of 92, as you know, Michael, uh, was the Bill Clinton nominating convention. And I had just finished my freshman year at Penn. I was back in New York working for the summer. And, you know, I'm a first-generation American. We didn't know anybody. We didn't have any money. But my dad knew a guy who was a lawyer for the Carpenters Union, and that guy got me a one-day pass to the Democratic convention. And if you look in the newspaper, it'll say convention, you know, noon to midnight, right? Right. And, and, but everyone, you, everyone listening to this is sort of smart enough to know nothing really starts till like 8 p.m. But I'm 18 years old and totally naive, so I show up at noon. And I start walking around Madison Square Garden. It's pretty clear I got there too early. It's like two guys running for state rep in Montana speaking, and that's about it. Uh, but I look up into the crowd, and I just see Ed Rendell sitting there by himself and – kind of thought to myself, well, he's the mayor of Philly, I go to school in Philly, I'll go say hello, what's the worst that could happen? And of course, as you well know, he was probably just talking to the empty chair until I got there anyway. Right. Um, and we had a great conversation. At the end of the conversation, he said, hey, are you busy? You got to school. And I said, not really. He said, do you want an internship? I said, that'd be great. He said, okay, send me a note, we'll set it up. I go home, I write a letter, I mail it in. Every day I'm opening the mailbox, no reply. Because what I know now but didn't know then is that correspondence is the black hole of government. Everything goes in, nothing comes out. So school starts again. I get back to school, and it's like a decade before 9-11, so security is not what it is today. And I had this sort of very naive thought of, like, I'll go see him. So I hopped on the SEPTA and went, went down to City Hall and got to kind of his outer office. And there were these nice kind of old ladies from South Philly sitting there. And I said, can I see the mayor? And in retrospect, it was such a crazy question to ask, right? You're not supposed to be able to do that. Um, and the only people who usually do that are either people who are, A, actually crazy, which I, which I wasn't, or, B, protesting. I wasn't protesting anything. And they said, oh, sorry, he's a little busy right now. And I said, well, could I leave a note? Sure. So I write a note, hop back on the train to go back to high-rise south of Penn. And kind of on the train, it hits me like, you idiot. You can't, like, just go see the mayor. Like, forget it. This thing's never going to happen. Ten minutes later, uh, the phone in my dorm room rings. Please hold for the mayor. He gets on the line, says, when are you coming to work? And I worked for him all through college. I think your response was, I'll be there in 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's about how long it would take to get back. I couldn't afford a cab, but that's how long it would take to get back down on the SEPTA. Okay, so let me ask a question about Schumer, and I'll put it in the yeah. context of your book. Because you, you say in your praise for Bloomberg, which, by the way, I share – Uh, You say he's the rare guy in politics. He wants to get things done. And that's one type of politician. The others, the typical Paul, the ideologue, the I'm just happy to be here and the corrupt Paul. Into which category does Schumer belong? 
you know, Schumer is somewhere mainly in the kind of just typical Paul where, look, Chuck is very smart. If you ask him, he'll tell you he got a 1600 on the SATs. Um, but, um, you know, Chuck can't live without media attention. It's literally like how oxygen is to you or me to breathe. That's what media attention is to him. And so you have someone who's very talented in a lot of ways and works hard, and it's not like it's corrupt or anything like that, but every decision he makes is predicated solely on how much attention will I get, how much credit can I get. Um, that made it really hard when I worked for his communications director, especially when Hillary Clinton then entered the Senate and stole most of his media attention because she's a lot more famous than he is. Um, and I think it's hard for him now as minority leader and maybe even majority leader at some point, which is a really good leader has to give credit to other people and, and share, and that's really not his natural tendency. From Schumer, you go to Bloomberg, and your role initially is is what? Co-executive director of the, the Charter Revision Commission? Yeah, basically. I was, I was working for Chuck. Mike won out of nowhere. My friend said, hey, come join us at City Hall. Uh, so I did, and then they wanted to change the city charter, so that I ran a little campaign to, to pass that, and we did. Um, and then uh, just showed up in Mike's office one day with this campaign promises idea, which was um, I thought it would make sense for Mike to be the first politician ever to publicly report on the status of every one of his campaign promises, whether it was completed or not, because the point wasn't so much, look how much I've done. The point was, I am going to be so transparent that I will be totally different than any politician you've ever seen before. Any other politician would have thrown me out of his office when I proposed that. But of course, Mike being Mike, he loved it and we did it. What's he like on a personal level? I, I'm, I have a, the utmost respect for him because he's a non-ideologue, which I like, and he gets shit done. But what's he yep. like to be with? He's very direct. He's very pragmatic. He's very efficient. He does not suffer fools gladly at all. Um, not great at making small talk. Uh, so, you know, you can have these sort of long, awkward silences because if there's nothing specifically discussed, we may not talk at all. Um, but he just, he's as brilliant as you think he would be. Uh, he kind of sees the world in a way that, that is just remarkable and that he can understand how 12 different things in 12 different places all impact each other. Um, and he genuinely, I've just never seen this other politician, has this incredible desire to, to do good. And why I really respect it is often it was to his own political detriment. And as a guy who ran his campaign, it didn't make my job any easier when he would do things that were to his own political detriment. But he did it time and time again because it's what he believed in. He has to regret not having taken a shot in 2016, right? Yeah. He, so he's not the kind of guy that expresses regrets. Um, and I know better than to sort of probe him to ask him if he regrets it. But yeah, look, there's a chapter in the book that talks about how we prepared a campaign for him to run as an independent in 2016. Uh, it, look, it would have been a triple bank shot. No one's ever run and won as an independent before. But I think in an election where you had two really polarizing candidates in Trump and Clinton and all of Mike's background and resources, I think we would have had a shot. Yeah, I, I really do. So uh, I, I wish we had done it. And it's, it's too bad that we didn't. Uh, one other Bloomberg politics question. I, I'm thrilled that all I know is what I read, that he's he's contemplating 2020. I don't see the path as a D. And that yeah, disappoints me. He's got to write the check and run as an I. So I think the, the political concern, it would be simply that people are so polarized right now and so partisan because of everything going on 
that there's just not an opening for an independent in the way there was in 2016. So if he were to run and run as a Democrat, it was simply because he just just we didn't think there was any path at all as an independent. But yeah, look, I'm 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 with you. He is an independent. Uh, I'm an independent. I, I became one when I started working with him, um, and that's where he fits naturally. It's a much harder path to the White House, obviously, but it's probably a little more true to who he is. Yeah, I'd love to bend his ear for five minutes and and try and talk him out of it because uh, I, the, I, I might take you up on that. The, the the people coming out in Democratic primaries and caucuses, he's not selling what they're looking for. They they are much yeah. more ideologically driven. All right, here's the most interesting personality. You think I'm going to talk about the guy who runs Uber, but I'm more interested in Blagojevich. So how in the world? What were you, 29? Yep. Okay, did you think it was a joke when you were offered this job? I, I did. So I'm sitting in – so at, at City Hall under Bloomberg, no one had an office. It was just called the bullpen, and, and we just had desks in a big room, and his desk was in the middle of it. So I'm sitting at my desk working on the campaign promise stuff. Phone rings, and a guy I had worked with in Schumer's office said, hey, how'd you like to be the deputy governor of Illinois? And like, kind of, I thought it was like a prank call, right? Like, what, what's the deputy governor, and why are you calling me? And the answer is it's the guy that runs the state. And the the reason ultimately they needed me was two reasons. One, Blagojevich was so crazy that putting aside illegality or anything else, working for him was so difficult because he was so irrational at all times. They needed someone young enough that it was such a career-making job for them that they would tolerate all that and put up with all of it, which which I did and I was. Um, I was also pretty young and naive, and so they were able to structure the job in a way where I oversaw everything except for grants and contracts and patronage and things like that. Uh, and that's where all the corruption happens. And they were able to rob the place blind without me noticing until Rod uh, inadvertently asked me to extort Rahm and Ari Emanuel. And luckily, I, I said no and put a stop to it and reported it. A typical Blagojevich workday. You write, by the um, way, the book is titled yeah. The Fixer. You say it's a loose mix of a few phone calls, watching Sports Center, reading long biographies of Napoleon. Preparing for a run, going for a run, stretching after the run, and then showering for at least 90 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, by the way, it occurs to me, he could still be doing a lot of those things where he is today. Yeah, it's funny. I remember when he went to jail, I kind of had that thought, too. I'm like, I'm not sure his day is going to be that different. <laughs> um, you also say, though, relative to having what it takes to be a retail politician, he's got few equals. Yeah, amazing. Look, you, you don't – he's a guy, first-generation American, son of a steel worker, grew up with no real advantages, and made himself the governor of the fifth biggest state in America, never lost an election. In fact, won re-election despite being investigated corruption by double digits, right? So politically, he, he was a marvel, and it's because his – personal political instincts were incredible. He knew how to connect with people, whether it was a big crowd or or one-on-one. He knew how to read other politicians. So when he had it and he was turning it on, he was as good as it gets, really the best I've ever seen. The problem is Rod in many ways saw running for office as one job and holding office as another job. And in his mind, his job was to run for office. And he did, and he won, and he kind of thought, okay, I'll see you guys in four years when we do it again. Right, and Um, that's why he needs Bradley Tusk to come in and, and run some things. Yeah, I mean, look, first it was terrifying, right, because I'm trying to get this guy to decide what bills to sign and veto, what should go on the budget, and I just can't get him on the phone. I can't get him to pay attention. And then finally one day I'm like, all right, screw it. I'll just do it myself. And for the next four years uh, I had the freedom and opportunity to just 
make policy for the state. We signed bills, we vetoed, we granted pardons, we denied pardons, we negotiated the budget, we did the whole legislative agenda. So it was kind of great because we were able to be really, really experimental because it was you know, kind of no one to say no. I'm not giving it all away for free. This is Bradley Tusk. The book is called The Fixer, My Adventure Saving Startups from Death by Politics. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. I'm not giving it all away for free. This is Bradley Tusk. The book is called The Fixer, My Adventure Saving Startups from Death by Politics. But but at least tell me about the phone call that comes once you've rejoined Bloomberg. Hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup and he's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? And that was really the beginning of a whole new chapter of your life. Yeah, absolutely. I was. I had started a consulting firm after the Bloomberg campaign and I was sitting in a Walmart meeting and I, I get that call from a friend of mine. Um, and you know, a few hours later, I am Uber's first political advisor and my life really changes when Travis Kalanick then calls me back and says, hey, listen, I can't afford your fee. Would you take equity? Uh, that was during the Series A and uh, really just ended up being incredibly lucrative and, and gave, given me the opportunity. Wait, to can I just can I can I interrupt and say and ask yeah. a question? Because you had received a bonus from Bloomberg yep. by now, right, for having successfully yep. managed the reelection. So so you've got the the freedom, I guess, to take that deal. But did you did you know, hey, th- they no. are really you just thought you'd take a flyer. 
Oh, yeah. I didn't know anything, man. I, I mean, I'm lucky that Travis treated me fairly in the contract I signed because I didn't even know what I was signing. You know, now I run a venture capital fund that I have lawyers and investment professionals and all these people who know what they're talking about. But I didn't know anything. I was just like, yeah, sure, what the hell? Um, I mean, the only thing I saw was this was an interesting concept because Uber was a little more than a concept at that point, And he was an interesting guy. But that was really it, right? And then luckily, through all the work that we did, we were able to build something that was, was pretty special and pretty unique and really shaped the way that startups should deal with politics going forward, which is we had a really rough opponent in, in the taxi industry. It's really like a cartel in every single city. And they use their political influence, their campaign donations, their lobbyists to try to stop ride sharing from happening in every single city. And we just had to fight them tooth and nail. I could, I could and we just, couldn't, I could just yeah. see how initially you might say, well, wait a minute. Conceptually, everybody's going to be a taxi driver. People are going to drive their own cars. You know, hit me with this again. You know, at, at that point, UberX hadn't even been created yet. So it was just Uber Black, which was, which was more of a traditional car service mm-hmm. variation. So the, the, sco- the scale and scope of it at that point, wasn't what it then became. So, um, yeah, I remember the moment when Travis told me about UberX, and that, that was exactly my reaction. I, I, I couldn't see it at all, but, of course, he, he could, which is what mattered. Um, but, yeah, look, we, we took on taxi. I remember in, in Philly, the taxi, committee, the taxi guys yeah, controlled sure. the, the PPA, the Philadelphia Parking Authority, and we had to sort of break through that in order to allow Uber to operate in, in Philly and, you know, have those fights all over the country. So what I've really done is cherry picked some of the, the, the fun anecdotes, at least according to me, in the fixer. But before I leave you, people should not get the wrong impression. It's not only taking us through the ride you've had, but you offer advice, particularly to startups and try and apply some of your political wit and wisdom to business dealings. Yeah, so it, it really takes the work we've done with startups like Tesla, Lemonade, FanDuel, Handy, Ease, and a bunch of others and says, here was the situation they got themselves into, here's what other people were doing to them, and here are the tactics and strategies we used to overcome it, or here are the things we tried to overcome it and we failed, right? But either way, here's what we learned from it, because there are 17,000 startups in the U.S., I can invest in and work with maybe a dozen at any given time. That's about it. Um, but the other, you know, 16,988 shouldn't be subject to pay-to-play politics and corruption and attempts to stifle innovation. And so the point of the book is to say, here's how you should think about this stuff and deal with this stuff, whether you've got someone like me on your side or not. I really thir- – I hope you can tell. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was yeah, a, a really a great, really a great, great read, and I wish you all good things with it. Get your buddy to run as an I for crying out loud. Please. I, I will shoot him an email now and tell him that you said that. The Fixer. Thank you, Bradley Tusk. Thanks, Michael. Bradley Tusk, The Fixer. My adventure saving startups from death by politics. TC, your uh, reaction to the conversation, please. Well, first, let's start at the very beginning. Of course, when I heard Fixer, I thought Michael Cohen. So I was glad that you covered <laughs> that to start with. Yeah. Well, I thought it was an, look. I thought it was a very interesting uh, decision to make for the title of, of the book. But what a life so far. If, talk about being in the right place at the right time with Uber dropping into your lap. Do you That's think, incredible. Do you think that Fixer is a pejorative I never thought of it as pejorative. Uh, I thought of it more as maybe a little tricky. Like, I didn't think of it as a bad thing. I thought of it as someone who dealt with bad things, if that makes sense. So that the fixer is not necessarily the quote-unquote bad person, but whoever he's fixing is the bad person. That's how I always thought of it. So I'm, I told you a story. I told him a story at the outset about the, the lawyer that I know who is superb. Sure. I, I went back and pulled the story just 
quickly doing a Google search while I was conducting the the interview from 2003. What am I reading from? Uh, Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. I have no idea what that is. A 501c3 nonprofit (laughs) dedicated to assisting journalists. Uh, November 21, 2003, the American Bar Association settled a libel lawsuit yesterday agreeing to pay an undisclosed amount of money to attorney Richard A. Sprague. In addition, the association will publish a half-page apology in the February issue of the ABA Journal and pay for the publication of Sprague's biography written by Philadelphia Daily News reporter Joe Dawn. Sprague brought a libel lawsuit against the ABA, the ABA Journal, and writer Terry Carter in 2001 for an October 2000 article in which Carter referred to Sprague as a lawyer cum fixer. Carter reported that a Philadelphia district attorney hired Sprague, the DA's former boss, to assist in the prosecution of a police officer for the shooting of an unarmed black teenager. The crux this is the key part. The crux of the libel case involved the interpretation of the word fixer. Sprague alleged that the reference implied that he was engaged in illegal activity, namely bribing judges. The ABA, however, argued that the term was meant to complement Sprague by suggesting that he was a powerful legal strategist called in to handle complex litigation. So there you go. The journal ended up running a clarification saying it intended the reference to mean Sprague is known for his problem solving skills in politically nuanced cases. The journal did not intend to convey that Sprague had engaged in any unethical or illegal activity. That's what I was referencing at the outset. The book is called Now You Certainly Know The Fixer. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays.